It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And right here on Talk Radio. So, Christmas has come and gone, and we are now free to barrel headlong into the new year. But before we set out our stall for 2020, we should probably just recap a few things that happened since we last spoke. Who can forget Boxing Day, or should we say Foxing Day, when the Romaniac barrister Jolian Moron thought it might be a great idea to murder an innocent fox in his garden with a baseball bat. The man who spent most of this year trying to stop Brexit by taking the government to court then thought it would be another great idea to tweet about his seemingly random and needless act of violence performed while he was wearing his wife's kimono. Since then, the RSPCA has launched an investigation and our legal eagle Morm has gone very quiet indeed. As I said earlier to James Max, why didn't he just bore the fox to death with one of his diatribes about Brexit on Twitter? You know, those threads that he does? A thousand words, two thousand words, three thousand words. Meanwhile, the Labour Party is still trying to find a leader and failing dismally. The latest name to enter the fray is Rebecca Long-Bailey, but judging by her job application in The Guardian today, calling for progressive patriotism, whatever that is, she's not learned much from the election defeat. Biggest election defeat, of course, in the Labour Party since 1935, in case anyone's forgotten about that. 0344 499 Coming up, Andre Walker joins the Independent Republic today with his take on the big stories of the year. Plus, we'll be discussing Tony Blair looking for EU money while campaigning to remain and the latest from the world of ethical veganism. Apparently, vegans are now worried that they may be the subject of veganophobia or something like that. Uh, but of course, most of all, we do want to hear from you because we are the voice of the people here at Talk Radio and you may not have had as many chances to have your say uh, since I haven't been here. So by all means, take advantage of it now. 0344 499 1000. We're kicking off this morning with a school race route. Two of this country's leading private schools have refused to accept over £1 million in scholarship funds from a wealthy philanthropist because they fear they might be breaching anti-discrimination laws. Guess why? Yep, that's right. Because the money was to be earmarked for Poor white boys. Unbelievable, isn't it? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest great radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. 
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there are many, many stories to talk about on the way to one o'clock today when Jamie East is going to be filling in for Matthew Wright. It's going to be a fantastic show this morning. I want to hear from lots of you about what you did over Christmas. I went to Scotland, many of you will know, uh, up to Trump Turnberry, believe it or not, uh, which was in magnificent form. Some people were worried that when Donald Trump bought Turnberry, he might ruin it. He's actually augmented it, made it better. The golf course was magnificent. The hotel was amazing. Uh, the villas were fantastic. It was a beautiful uh, outlook on uh, the Ayrshire coast there in Scotland. And in fact, it didn't even rain apart from on one day. So I have to say it was a magnificent little Christmas. I hope you had a good one as well. Do call us and let us know your favourite stories of the Christmas period. Do feel free to talk about uh, the fox baiting, fox beating case. Do feel free to talk about the Labour Party. Do feel free as well uh, to talk about the BBC because we're going to be finding out why something like three quarters of people in this country now think the BBC licence fee should be abolished. You know the number, 0344 499 1000. We're going to kick things off this morning, though, by talking uh, to our good friend Roger Layton, Chief Executive of Partnership Learning, an academy trust that runs over nine schools. Uh, he is himself a former head teacher. An extraordinary story this morning about how one particular philanthropist wants to leave in his will enough money, several million possibly, uh, to actually be used as scholarship funds to take poor white kids through the private school system. But guess what? The two schools in question where the money was due to go have basically snubbed the gift, saying that they're worried that they might be in breach of anti-discrimination laws. Dulwich College, Winchester College, turned down an offer from Professor Sir Brian Thwaites, who's basically 96 years of age. Let's talk to Roger and find out what he makes of it. Well, Roger, very good morning to you. Good morning. And greetings of the season to you. I hope you had a good Christmas and all of that. Um, this is an extraordinary state of affairs, isn't it? Because under normal circumstances, if you leave money to uh, a seat of learning, they are usually welcoming it with open arms, aren't they? They will. I mean, it, it, oh, this is an extraordinarily difficult, sensitive area, isn't it? Which are the most um, important characteristics that need, that need maybe help, you know, that, 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 that make people disadvantaged? Is it is it is it race? Is it class? Um, is it gender? Is it the fact you had um, a single parent upbringing or a two parent family? I think you're into a whole minefield here. Where do you draw the line? Where do you stop dealing with um, you know the individual? and treat them as a mass of characteristics. Very tricky one. Well, apparently you draw the line at the poor white kids because this is the first time, as far as I know, that anybody's ever turned down free money to educate some people. Uh, yeah, I suppose the, the, the potential problem here... Well, I can see a load of problems. How do you define white for a start? <laughs> well, no, no, um, no, but don't you... If you start doing that, you're looking for a problem, aren't you? Surely, if you go to white communities in this country where there are lots of poor white kids, and I think there's plenty of, of, of analysis that's been done which says that working-class white boys are currently the most underprivileged in terms of, you know, positive discrimination, in terms of, you know, money that, that comes from local councils, in terms of all sorts of things. They are very unbalanced in the sense that they are not treated equally. I'm not sure that they're not being treated equally. It's true that they are not performing as well as other groups in society. That is absolutely true. But I've been in this business of education for 40 years, and I've always thought from way back that class is the most important determinant rather than race. That um, it's whether you have the benefits of you know a home full of books and parents who are aspirational 
um, and the sorts of things that tend not only to go along with middle-class backgrounds, but come more naturally from middle-class backgrounds. You can still have that in a working-class, low-income background, but you're more likely to have it in a, in a middle-class background. And right from the beginning, I've seen that you know you can have you can have kids from ethnic minorities, but in very aspirational quote middle-class homes doing equally as well as white middle-class kids. It's class is the most important thing. It really is. Well, it is, but then, as, as Sir Brian has said, you know, he points out the fact that Stormzy, um, the Grimes star, established Cambridge University scholarships exclusively for black British students. I don't remember anybody at the time saying, how do you define black? That's an interesting one. You know what? I went to the trouble this morning when I heard this story to look up the application details for that scholarship. Right. And... Um, Actually, it's very wide-ranging. It's not black. It's black mixed, black other, anything with a bit of black in it. Um, you know, it really is quite a wide-ranging ethnic um, uh, description. Again, though... Yeah, I but thought, it's still I black, thought, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you still have well, to... Uh, I mean, yes, yes, I nobody yes, asked the question, some, is my point. Yeah, no, no, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair point as well. But again, I get so twitchy. You know, this reminds me of South Africa in the times of apartheid. Does it? And, you know, these fine gradations of racial background. I, I'm very twitchy about it. Well, you're, but you're, you're the one that brought it up, Roger. You're the one that said, how do you define white? I didn't. I know, but the point, my, my basic point is that I think it's class rather than race that's the most important thing here. And therefore, I, w- I would prefer all such scholarships to be about your disadvantage economically and socially rather than your ethnic background. That's my basic... OK, no, I agree with, totally with you on that. And so if you had been at Cambridge University and Stormzy had come to you with this proposal, would you have said to him, why don't you just make it available to everybody? I'd have said I'm much more interested in the socio-economic background of um, the causes that that of disadvantage than, than ethnicity. Yeah, but doesn't this also really bring us back, Roger, to the whole problem of what you might call positive discrimination? That whenever you positively discriminate in favour of one particular group of people, then by the very nature of that, you're positively discriminating against another group. Uh, yes, potentially, although you can get round that by um, expanding the number of overall places available, can't you? Um, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Well, yeah, but, I mean, there has to presumably be some kind of ceiling on it, otherwise you're just paying for everybody to go to university and there's no point in anyone going. Uh, yes, yes, you're right. There has to be a common-sense limit to these things. But I think there is scope for, um, in particular, it's not so much going to university in general, because I think, in the main, most people who are capable of going to university are able to go to university now. You might want to argue about fees and loans and so on and so forth, but actually um, most people who are capable of going to university do go to university now in, in the UK. But I think when you're talking about the elite institutions, um, you know, the, the, the Stormzy Cambridge example, it is possible to expand the number of places to ensure that you get a more equal representation and are helping those people from disadvantaged socioeconomic I, I stress that again, background. Well, given some of the things that have been going on in Cambridge University recently, I'm not sure it's all it's altogether the place to send somebody if you want to give them an all-round education anyway, because they only teach you the stuff that they think you should be learning. What about what Trevor Phillips had to say? He's basically calling this a lethal cocktail of inverted snobbery, racial victimhood and liberal guilt because these schools don't want to help white boys. Now, he's not a guy uh, that you would imagine would be on the wrong side of an apartheid conversation. 
No. Um, although he has had his own strong views on a range of these areas, he's not necessarily um, you know, the only mouthpiece of that community and that, that, that point of view. Yeah, but he's but, former uh, chairman of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Yeah, no, that's true. He's got, he's got pedigree, I agree. Um, but but, but I, I suppose I come back to my really basic point here, that um, I would hope those elite institutions, in, in this case, you know, the Winchester and Dulwich colleges of this world, would be looking to help all disadvantaged students from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds. So I can just about understand their reluctance to want to pin it down onto a particular ethnicity. But I would say I want I would I would want that across the board that would apply in the Stormzy case as well as this case. Yeah, I but it doesn't it and that's why part. but that's why it's a story, Roger, because it's not being it's not being done equally and it's not being done yep. in, in a balanced way. So effectively yep. we've got a situation where Trevor Phillips appears to be right um, until somebody can prove him wrong. <laughs> um, yes, um, you could argue that, it, it, you know, because you're right, we've got two different sets of criteria here, and I don't think different sets of criteria are a good idea in, the, in, in education in general. Um, it can create um, feelings of distrust um, and unfairness, and that, that's not good for the system as a whole. So I'll, I'll keep repeating it. It's about class. It's about your socioeconomic background, most of all. And if you think about it, class is probably the one thing that is least dealt with across all the across all aspects of society. Still, not just education, is it? You know, um, access to elite professions. Um, you know, there's been a lot of work done to improve the representation of ethnic minorities in elite professions. Not much done to improve the representation of people from working class backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you and I can both agree, Roger, that white working class kids are severely disadvantaged now in this country. So Brian Thwaites even says that it's a severe national problem, the underperforming of white young men in schools. I mean, it's a problem, but nobody seems to be addressing it. It is a problem. I think I think it is being addressed, but it's being addressed. I suppose you could say in a you know in a much more tedious way than national programs. It's been addressed school by school by school. So I'll, I'll give you an example of one of our highest performing schools in our group of schools, schools called Riverside School in okay. Darking Dagenham, and they and they perform superbly well with white working class kids and working class kids in general. In fact, the working class kids in that school outperform the non-working class kids. And how do you measure that? Do you measure that in the GCSE results or what? In GCSE results, yeah. But what happens um, to them after that? Uh, well, they, they, they do very well. They, they move on to A-levels, they go on to university, so they're, they're doing incredibly well. Um, so it can be done, and that's about very high-quality education day in, day out, which benefits students whatever they're Sure. And, I mean, you're running, you're running this place... Sorry, Roger. Sorry. It's one of your schools. So tell us how you're making that work. How are you doing? What what can you show other people as as to how to make that work? Okay, incredibly strong discipline. So, for instance, the students are not allowed to talk when they move from lesson to lesson. Okay, um, I'm liking it already. Yeah, <laughs> um, very very high quality teaching with a huge investment in continual improvement in classroom practice so that those teachers every day are considering how they could have taught that lesson better next time. Um, a very strong academic traditional curriculum, so the vast majority of students in the school um, study what's known as the English Baccalaureate, which are the traditional academic subjects. 
So that that's our that's the recipe basically. Yeah, and that's and that's obviously been going for a while now. So you're seeing uh, the sort of benefit of that. What about higher education and moving those kids into higher education into universities if that's where they want to go? Yeah, only just started with that school because that was a new school that started seven years ago. Uh-huh. Okay, so they're just getting into university applications now. However, I could take a, another well-established school, an Ofsted Outstanding School in our trust, Sydney Russell. Um, they do extremely well in getting students into Russell Group University. So it can be done, and we're talking about you know what are very solid working-class communities over there in East London. And it can be done with with students from extremely disadvantaged backgrounds. You've just got to work very hard. But the basics, really. So if Sir Brian Thwaites came to you with this money and said, well, Dulwich don't want it, Winchester don't want it, do you want it? I'd have it if it was about helping our disadvantaged students get to where they need to be. Yes, I would. Well, what would you but say not, is the... What would not, you say... Not, not, if it was, not if it was only for white students. What about what about the, the what about the question of how many disadvantaged students there are? Say, for example, in that school you've mentioned in Barking, how yeah. what's the percentage of disadvantaged students? Oh, um, by the official uh, measure, about fifty percent from okay. memory. All right, and how well do the other fifty percent do? Um, they do well as well. It's not that they're underperforming, um, but the both both do very well. It's one of the highest performing top five percent schools in the country. Right. So they all do well. I think it's about everybody moving up together, really. I suppose that would be my final message. Well, it is about everybody moving up together, but it's also about realising that everybody has different talents and different um, abilities, and everybody's not going to end up with the same result. No, no, and it's not that we say that everybody has to follow a pure traditional academic route. There are some students who follow vocational routes, um, have a chance to go to to do spend some of their time at local FE college. Um, so you're right; it's about horses for courses and, and people, you know, utilising you know the best aspects of their talents. But it is in the main about providing high quality education day in day out. That's what really overcomes disadvantage, whatever the form of the disadvantage. Right. And in your sort of analysis of disadvantage, is it mostly financial? What is it exactly? I can I can only use financial because that's the official definition. Um, it, you know, it's about household income. But I I personally would say there's a whole range of other possible disadvantages, aren't there? Are the sort of things we talked about earlier about you know, are you in a home that's got books? Are you in a home where you're given support and love but discipline as well? Um, are you in a home where there's aspiration to do well? and a, a sense of belief that you can do well, that if you work hard, you will be rewarded eventually. And that starts to get That's tricky, though, doesn't it? Because you, you, you're starting to peer behind the old net curtains to see what's exactly. going on in somebody's and house. And you, exactly. Not everyone's keen on that. No. So, you, you know, you have to take the official measure in order to, you know, to work out how well you're doing. And I suppose, you know, we've just, we just struck upon another problem with this whole area that we've been talking about, is uh, these broad-brush definitions, whether they're... Um, your income or your ethnicity—they don't reveal the reality of your your individual existence, do they? And whether you, you know there are other huge disadvantages that you're trying hard to overcome. Mm, so absolutely. my field. 
Fascinating stuff. Roger, as ever, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Roger Layton there, Chief Executive of Partnership Learning and Academy Trust that oversees nine schools, uh, including that one in Barking that he was talking about, where there's an awful lot of disadvantaged people uh, who do very well. He says, also, an awful lot of disadvantaged young white boys who are doing better uh, than they would otherwise be doing. Now, according to this story today, Sir Brian Thwaites, who's a professor, wants to give over a million pounds for poor white boys to do scholarships at two leading private schools in this country. Dulwich College, Winchester College. Now, as far as he's concerned, the white middle, uh, white working-class boy problem is the biggest problem facing our society educationally as we speak. I'm sure you'd agree with that. Roger says it's not about whether you're white or black, it's about class. I don't agree with him. I think people who are white in this country and working class are not getting the kind of help and the kind of opportunity uh, that lots of other groups of young men and young women are getting. So I want to hear from you on this, 0344 499 1000. I've been away for a week. I need to hear some of your voices, some of the common sense from you. I'm disappointed to get this from Nick, uh, who says, really, Mike, there is no point paying for everyone to go to university? Why not? Surely collective intelligence in this world is more important than individual intelligence. Oh, are you advocating only those that can afford can have? Nick, you fall into the trap. You think that only people who go to university are intelligent. There's an awful lot of thick people who go to university. Look at Jolian Moran. He's a QC. He's a barrister. He's been to law school. He's been to university. He's been all over the world. And yet, he's still a complete idiot. Do you see what I'm saying? 0344 499 1000. Get on the phone now. This is Talk Radio. We are Talk Radio. Now, you know how I feel about lawyers, right? Luckily, they're not all... Uh, like Jolie and Maugham. They don't go around clubbing foxes to death, innocent or otherwise. Uh, but there's a company called Slater and Gordon uh, who are currently involved in a landmark case, they say, about ethical veganism because there's a guy uh, who has been um, dismissed from his job, supposedly, uh, at the uh, League Against Cruel Sports because he uh, revealed some information which was personal and private to the company. Uh, he said he did it because he was an ethical vegan. That's kind of complicated. We're not necessarily getting into the ins and outs of that. But what Slater and Gordon have said is that ethical veganism is a philosophical belief held by a significant portion of the population in the UK and around the world. And what basically the guy in question, whose name is Geordie Kasamijana, uh, is taking is he wants to know whether he can have his rights protected because there may be vegan phobia at large uh, in the public eye. Uh, let's talk to Dominica Piasecca from the Vegan Society. Dominica, very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. Thank you. Is there such a thing as vegan phobia, do you think? Um, it's an interesting term. I mean, obviously, veganism is about uh, non-human animals who we fight for. So it's not really about vegans themselves being oppressed. It is animals who are being oppressed and it is animals who we are taking a stance for by being vegan. Yeah. Um, but having said that, there is a certain level of prejudice, I would say, against vegans. Uh, people feel defensive maybe about their own food choices as soon as they meet a vegan. Um, so that can definitely be a thing. Yeah. I mean, the reason I asked the question, of course, is because in order to set a landmark kind of ruling, I suppose, and a legal mm. precedent, you need to say that there is such a thing as ethical veganism. And I'm not sure I agree with Slater. I mean, I'm quite happy for this guy to have as many beliefs as he wants to have. But the problem for me is that when you say things like uh, the, the law firm say, a significant portion of the population in the UK are ethical vegans, I'm not sure what proportion they're talking about, what that number is. I wouldn't expect you to know, but I don't... Th I mean, veganism is still a minority interest here, isn't it? It is, it is, but it, we did actually do some research at the Vegan Society this year and we found that 600,000 people in Great Britain are vegans right now, so that's just over 1% of the population. So it is still quite a small number, like you say, but it is growing. Um, you know, many people are raising their children vegan as well. 
and more and more people are eating vegan foods and coming to veganism for you all the You can't use the word normal, I'm afraid. That's not allowed on this show because we don't know what that means. You know, normal is a, is a, is a pejorative. But what, when you say 600,000 people, do you mean also those who sometimes eat vegan food rather than all the time? Uh, no, so those are people on a vegan diet, um, but obviously veganism is a lifestyle choice, so we don't know if all those people, for example, avoid things like leather or um, cosmetics tested on animals, which is the key distinction in this uh, court case. So yeah. body claims that... You know, this, guy, this guy doesn't, uh, in addition to what he doesn't eat, he doesn't wear leather, doesn't wear silk, doesn't wear wool, yeah. he doesn't uh, use any products developed through animal testing, refuses to visit zoos or aquariums, does not buy products that use captive animals in their advertising... Uh, and when only date other vegans. He sounds <laughs> yeah, a bit of an obsessive to me, to be honest. <laughs> um, but everything else, that's that's exactly what an ethical vegan is. So I mean, is it any wonder that people... Areas of life. Is it any wonder that people seeing someone like him would not react in such a way as to be described as vegan-phobic? Because they might say, well, actually, you're not very tolerant, mate. You know, why don't you talk to people who eat meat? Why don't you hang out with people that eat meat? Why don't you occasionally even date one? Well, no, I, I think he does because he did work with a lot of meat eaters in, in the company that he worked for. It's just a case of being allowed to express your belief that animals shouldn't be used for any purpose, which is what we are doing. You know, I, I am a vegan myself, obviously, and I, I hang out with a lot of meat eaters. Right. My entire family are meat eaters, in fact. So okay. Do you travel about... by bus? Um, yes. Because he doesn't, because he doesn't want them to squash insects. Oh, gosh. Well, I think he does take it a bit far. I so think he does. Vegans, I mean, listen, we, we don't. I'm a very tolerant man here, Dominique, and I'm not going to make fun of your uh, eating habits because you're entitled to do whatever you want. But I think we all have to be slightly more tolerant of each other if we are to continue yeah. living in the same space, don't we? No, I absolutely agree, and, and this is like a, a case, um, a court case about tolerance after all. Um, it is just to allow vegans to make ethical choices in terms of pension funds, which is where the company um, allegedly went wrong. Yes. So it is not about imposing anything on other people, it's just about allowing vegans to express their beliefs that animals shouldn't be used for, right. for any reason. I mean, you might say that he shouldn't have been working for the League for Cruel Sports if they, in fact, had pension investments that he didn't agree with. Mm, I think that that emerged after his employment. So um, th there are lots of vegans and vegetarians working for right. the league, and, and obviously it is something something that they're fighting for. It is a vegan cause. Uh, so I guess he just expected the, the pension fund to be vegan as well. And do you not get the sense that this is a bit of a fad? I mean, if there's 600,000 people now, I'm not sure mm. that number is going to increase on a yearly annual basis because I think at the moment lots of people are kind of into it, but maybe next year they won't be. Yeah, no, I agree. I think a lot of people are um, eating vegan just, just because they're, they're curious about it, but there's yeah. nothing wrong in that because we are seeing a huge increase in the number of ethical vegans as well because people are realising we have so many amazing alternatives out there, so there's really no need to use animals in any way when we don't have to for health reasons, for, for ethical reasons, for environmental reasons, and we can be healthy and happy on a vegan diet as well, so there's no need whatsoever to use animals anymore. Do you think it's a bit unfair, though, when some um, aspects of veganism will be slightly more, shall we say, um, uh, militant? Because one of the jokes that we always tell is that, you know, um, why did the vegan cross the road to tell somebody he was a vegan? You know, they're always doing that rather than, you know, I don't go up to people and tell them I eat meat. I don't go up to people and tell them how to behave. Yeah. You know? 
No, well, I think it's a bit unfair because veganism is, is a substantial part of my life. And, you know, whenever there's a conversation around food, obviously it's going to come out, the fact that I'm vegan. So even people who don't know me very well, they might know my um, dietary preferences or my, my lifestyle beliefs. So um, it, it, there's a substantial part of your life, so it will emerge. Um, oh, of course, but there's nothing wrong with telling people. I'm not saying you shouldn't tell people. It's not secret. It's just that many people are much less polite about it than you are, Dominique, and they're very much more overbearing about it. Yeah, and I, and I can only apologise on behalf of those people. You know, as the vegan society, we always promote veganism in a positive and open-minded way. We know we can't force people to be vegan. If we could, we would by now, <laughs> trust me. Um, but obviously, it's, it's just uh, different people. Vegans come in all shapes and sizes. Sure. They, they can be nice, they can not be nice. But, you know, on, on the majority of people I've met who are vegan, they, they are tolerant and nice people. So okay. hopefully, you will meet some of them in all your right. life as well. Well, listen, Dominique, delightful to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Dominique, appear second the acceptable face of the vegan society, you'd have to say there. Uh, Andre was keen to jump in there, well, but I was going to let you monster her. No, 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 because the thing is, I'm, I'm increasingly of the view that that these people get sort of let down by absolute nutbags. Yes. Because I, I had a friend of mine, and he makes um, vegan burgers for a living. Yeah. Now, I've publicly said I quite like his vegan mm. burgers, and people are going, you eat meat and vegan burgers, you can't do that. Why well, not? yes, you can. Well, you can I'm, do anything you I'm like. What, I'm what's called an omnivore. Yes. Right, Funnily enough, I had a certain <laughs> experience. I was uh, on the way up to um, uh, Scotland, we stopped at one of those service stops and I thought, yep. I'm not going to have McDonald's every time we stop. So I went to Leon yep. and I saw they had a burger um, and they had two doing a chicken burger and a burger and I said, I'll have the burger. And she went, it's vegan. I went, OK, I'll have the chicken burger then. <laughs> so I didn't have the vegan burger, yeah. but I might as easily, if I'd been in a different mood, had one. Yeah, absolutely. And I've tasted vegan burgers. And I, I mean, you and I have both... Uh, been at an Indian um, a Bangladeshi yes, Caterers Association right. night, which was very much enjoyable. You're very well in with many of the uh, Indian yep. restaurants out in Berkshire, but also in London. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, many of our Indian friends are vegetarians. Yeah, that's so they never right. come into you and go. You can't have, uh, you well, know, you can't have the, any meat. I think one of the big dif difficulties that vegan organisations have is because these people are going far too far. And I'd make a couple of points. I mean, my friend who sells burgers, people wanted him to ban people wearing leather in his burger. You see, that's I ridiculous. Mean, uh, you know, and he said, he said, I can't put up a sign saying, don't come in if you wear fur or leather, right? right? Because fundamentally, it's got to be a welcoming environment. Yeah. But I'll tell you the other thing that worries me, and it's, it's the extension of the kind of offence culture. Now, as it happens, I... I'm self-employed, so I don't have a job that has a pension. But if my pension decisions were being made based on one person at the organisation objecting, yeah. saying, well, we, we can't invest in this, we can't invest in that, and you end up with these very, very poor investments, yeah. and I end up living in starvation yeah. in my old age because we didn't want to offend Bertie the vegan, yeah. then I'd be pretty upset well, about also, it. also, you know, not every organisation can be run as some kind of people's collective. You know, well, I mean, I used right. to run a radio station in Scotland, um, and the girlfriend of a guy that I fired came into my office one day and said, why have you fired him? And I said, what's he going to do with you? She said, well, he's my boyfriend. And I said, well, I'm sorry. You know, this is not a democratic organisation. Yeah. I'm the boss. He's an idiot. I fired him. Get out of the office before I fire you. <laughs> now, of course, there are those who would say, you can't talk to people like that in this day and age, but in that day and age, you could. And the bottom line for me um, is that you have to have tolerance. You can't expect people to be tolerant of you if you're not tolerant of them. Yeah. You know, the BBC, as we were just hearing, are now going to have this kind of, you know, um, calming 
uh, influence programming going on on Radio well, 4 I'm, to try and bring the country back together. I'm, in, I'm intolerant of people who want to say you can't invest in Unilever because it tests on animals. Right. I'm, I'm intolerant of them because fundamentally Unilever is a good company that makes an awful lot of money. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, at the end of the day, whether you have a belief system which allows you to operate within the Western world or the Eastern world, or whatever mm. world you want to inhabit, uh, and if it doesn't, you just go and live in a cave. And also, a lot, a lot of these things are quite complex because, as an example, the Unilever example is interesting. They don't like testing on animals, but in order to sell in China, you're required to. Right. right? So, so similarly, I remember when I worked in local government and the landfill tax came in from the European Union, we were all required to collect up all of our plastic and send it for recycling. Well, nobody sent it for recycling. What we did was we gave it to Chinese or Indian companies yeah. who claimed they were going to recycle right. it and then so threw it all in it the sea. Or set fire to Threw it, it all in the sea. Yeah. Hence your plastic mountain. And so consequently, when people were saying recycling in Britain has increased, no, it hasn't. The amount of recycling we've collected has increased and it's all been tipped in the sea. Yeah, absolutely right. Andre Walker here, Talking Sense. We'll take some more calls from you as well, Talking Sense. 0344 499 1000. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. We are back on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB. This is Talk Radio. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you might be forgiven to think that we've all gone uh, absolutely stark, staring, bonkers mad. And when you see stories like this one, uh, you do wonder whether the collective sort of psyche of this nation has gone rather over the edge. And this is when we got the news yesterday uh, that National Park boss Richard Leaf said that the Lake District basically has to change in order to merit continued public funding. He says he wants to attract a greater diversity of visitors amid concerns that swathes of our population feel excluded. Now, let's talk to Charlie Shepherd from the Ramblers uh, Association up there and see if he agrees. Charlie, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. 
That's good afternoon, Mike. Thank yeah. you very much for joining us. Now, I mean, I just drove through the Lake District, fine enough, albeit on the M6. I went up to Scotland for Christmas, came back as well. It's one of my favourite parts of the journey when you sort of, you know, sashay your way through all of those beautiful hills and inevitably there's a little bit of rain, a bit of cloud, a bit of sunshine. You can see some of those, um, you know, wind wind farms as well. It's a beautiful part of the world. I can't see what what's wrong. Um, I think that Richard Leaf has some validity in what he's saying in that if you do walk around the Lake District, I'm a local here, right. you do see a very much a predominance of white English people. Right. Well, but, that's because we're in England, right, presumably. Yes, um, but also, I mean, it has, that has changed in the last 10 years. There are a lot more BMI people about whether they're foreign tourists or British, I don't know. But there are there is a good case for improving access, particularly for people with physical and mental disabilities, because some of the areas are very restricted for that sort of pe for people who can't just get up and walk. Yes, but, I mean, that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? I mean, it depends on where you go in the country. I mean, I was up in Ayrshire on the Ayrshire coast. It's not a very diverse part of the world. Most of the people there are white and Scottish. It just so happens to be the case. If you go to Glasgow, it's a little bit more ethnically diverse, but Scotland as a whole, and the Cairngorms, for example... It's very unlikely uh, to be a place where you will meet lots of different people from inner cities because you just don't go there. Yeah, so th there is that. But I I'm more <clears throat> concerned about the people with disabilities, and I know that's the wrong word to use nowadays, but... You have to be very careful, right? So you, so you want to talk about people with disabilities, but you can't call them people with disabilities. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the correct word nowadays is for this, but, I mean... A lot of the guest houses and, and pro service providers could do a much better job quite easily by also by communicating better. But one of the other things in Richard Leaf's comments was a comment about the asphalting of a footpath, yeah. which we as the Ramblers have already objected to. Right. But this is a, it's not exactly a footpath through woodlands. It's the old track of a railway, which has been reinstated after severe damage in Storm Desmond. Yes. And it had a perfectly good hardcore type track base before, which you met all sorts of wheelchairs, pr um, push chairs, etc. Right. But now that they say that to be fully diverse, they want to put in asphalt, which we consider totally inappropriate. Yeah. And this is the problem, isn't it, Charlie? Because what we have here, perhaps, and I think you're doing a good job of trying to explain it, is somebody trying to say something, but then getting it completely wrong. Because on the one hand, you can say, well, wouldn't it be nice if it was more sort of accessible to people in wheelchairs? However, you know, some things are not accessible to people in wheelchairs and you can't make everything accessible to people in wheelchairs. You can certainly make hotels accessible. You should have public houses that are accessible. You should have toilets that are accessible. But you can't make the entire Lake District accessible to people in wheelchairs. No, you could improve public transport... Yeah, but that wouldn't make any difference if when, if when they get out of the bus, though, Charlie, um, they can't go anywhere. Well, I mean, I think there are things we could do, but um, one of the things we have to remember, and I think that, is that the Lake District is a unique landscape formed by nature and mankind, and that's what the World Heritage Site voted for. Right. And we must be very careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, exactly. And and I'm not sure you can even say that anymore, to be honest, because you might offend somebody well, with I a baby. <laughs> but no, but you see what I'm saying? I mean, I said, yeah. I jokingly said to somebody earlier, well, how would you make Mount Everest accessible for everybody? You can't do it. There are, no. you know, there are certain limitations about yes, the way that the... things we could do to improve it in certain areas, and we are doing that, 
making a lot of footpaths, particularly the lowland around, <coughs> excuse me, around the lakes, style-free and having gates instead. Yeah. But it's a bit like saying, can you not make the sea accessible for people who can't swim? Isn't yeah, it? no, but I mean, I think that Richard Leaf has possibly done this on purpose to raise the profile of discussion, but there are things we could do and there are things we should do. But we shouldn't go berserk. Well, what do you say. think you should be doing that you're not doing? We should be. Well, we are doing it, but possibly not fast enough. I mean, there are footpaths round the lakes, which Ramblers and other voluntary organisations are putting money into funding to improve the surface um, so that wheelchairs and prams and things can use them. We're not talking about doing this on the high mountains. No, but surely that would involve tarmacking them, wouldn't it? No, hardcore. Perfectly good hardcore solutions. Compacted hardcore is what we use. OK, so that's basically, for the uninitiated, that's basically concrete, isn't it? No, it, well, it, it doesn't look like that. It's, it's more like gra compacted gravel. Right, OK. And, I mean, the, the, one of the other issues you put there is about four-by-fours. Our argument there is that these tracks were never meant for regular traffic. They were meant for access. Hmm. And if you put a TRO, a traffic regulation order, in, you could have it with licensing arrangements for people taking people who are unable to walk there rather than those people who are unwilling to walk there. Right. But that surely is opening in a whole can of worms, isn't it? Because you're then going to damage the land in a way that it was never meant to be damaged. Because well, it's being damaged at the moment far more. By what? By these four-by-fours. Right. So and what's what, your... we look, what we, the Ramblers, want to do is to introduce some TROs, but the Lake District National Park Authority are totally against it. Uh -huh. And that is why there is talk of, Richard Leafy quoted, a possible judicial review against their decision. Doesn't this all sound like a bit of uh, nanny statery, though, that we could do without? Yes, but I'm very fond of the Lake District. I've lived here all my life, and yeah. I don't want to see it wrecked. I also like to share it with other people. Yeah. But what he's saying is you're not sharing it with enough people. So he wants more people to come, well, damaging we, it, surely damaging it even more. Well, he wants to have his different people. And at the moment... Well, you mean he doesn't want the people that come there now to come anymore? Well, I don't think he's quite that strong. But what we Well, ought then you're going to get more people then, aren't you? Yeah, but we could spread them out better. At the moment, the Lake District is very crowded in the honeypot areas. Right. But there are a lot of beautiful areas that don't see an awful lot of people. I can go walking at a weekend within the Lake District National Park and not see a soul. Right. And that's one of the reasons you want to go somewhere like that, though, isn't it? You don't want to okay, turn oh, yeah. it into a it's sort of attraction that everybody can get to and that everybody has access to, because part of the attraction of it is that you can be solitary. Yeah, but we also... I mean, the Ramblers themselves are looking very much at trying to, in to increase the variety of our membership. We, we are rather than that, almost, as I said, the traditional word of pale, stale and male. But we aren't male, we're very much equal. <laughs> You're actually calling yourself pale, stale and male? No, I'm not. I'm saying that that's what people say we, people, some people say we are. Well, you've got Janet Street Porter. I mean, she's not male, is she? No. She is quite stale, or though. Or pale. <laughs> or quiet. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But, I mean, I just worry, Charlie, that we're in danger of wrapping ourselves up in knots here and getting to the point where we can't do anything without asking loads of other people if they'd like to come along. Yeah, I understand entirely where you're going, but I think I'm possibly less ex extreme than the view you're presenting. Yes, no, I think I'm sure you probably are, in the same way that you're less extreme than the view that was presented by Mr Leaf. But, you know, surely the whole point of, of being British and being sensible is that you are somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think what Richard Leaf's doing is trying to, and I, I don't know him personally, but to increase his funding. Well, that wouldn't surprise me, and that's all well, public no, money, isn't it? The National Parks have had their funding slashed over the last... Ten years. Right. 
almost the point where footpath maintenance is almost all done by volunteers. Uh-huh. You know, so he, he, may, he may have, he's a clever man, he may have method in his madness, but we, we in Ramblers will make, do our most best to make sure that some of the more extreme things do not happen. Yes, well, I hope so, because we don't like extremes in this country, and well, we like things... We're, we're, not... we're a walking and campaigning organisation, and yeah. we were very much behind the Right to Roam Act. Right. Yeah, I mean, you like walking through people's gardens, don't you, if you've got the Right to no, Roam there? I don't like walking through people's gardens because they have dogs. <laughs> well, not everyone has a dog. <laughs> you know what I mean. No, but Janet Street Porter likes walking through people's gardens, yes, doesn't she? She makes a big thing of it. I'm, I'm less extreme than that. Yes, that's very good. Well, as long as you're less extreme than most people, Charlie, you'll do well. Thank All you right. very much indeed. Uh, Charlie Shepherd, there, uh, chair of the Lake District area of Ramblers. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, you can't surely make everything available to everyone. For example, I'd quite like to drive a Ferrari, right? Now, it turns out I do drive quite a nice car, but I don't drive a Ferrari. You can't make it possible for everyone to drive a Ferrari. You can't make it possible for a very large person to get into a very small sports car. You can't make it possible for a child to drive an HGV. You know, there are things that some people can do and that other people can't do. I don't understand this obsession with making everything available to everyone all the time. I mean, you know, have I gone mad? I don't think I have. 0344 499 1000. I've only been away a week. Look what's been going on. For God's sake, you better call me. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Andre Walker's here with me. Sam Delaney's coming up in the next hour to talk about uh, the year 2009. Now, everybody's looking at me when I said this as if I'd gone mad. I was like, well, why don't we look back 10 years? Because everybody's going to be doing the year end. Everybody's going to be doing the decade end. I thought, imagine what was going on in 2009, 10 years ago. How about this remark? He says, I spend a lot of time in the lakes as I live nearby. In the summer, it is swamped with Japanese tourists. Do they count towards diversity? Not that I care anyway. Well, I mean, the idea that the guy that runs the lake district, which, Andre, you said you've come from not that far away from mm. the lake district. A friend of mine's from Keswick. In fact, he has a shop in New York. He's a butcher uh, called Myers of Keswick and he's very wow. famous um, sells to English rock stars, sells, you know, like sausages and meat pies to, to Keith Richard and Mick Jagger um, and he's very much a Lake District man. But the idea that this guy's saying oh, we've got to bring more people into the Lake District, we've got to tarmac well, over some places so that people can get access to wheelchairs and all the rest of it. I mean, it's mad, isn't it? Well, isn't Keswick the town that decided to have effectively a kind of water park type thing? Yes. And they just discovered that their demographic was not particularly interested yeah. in that sort of thing. I mean, fundamentally, if you do not want to walk around um, hills and mountains, no. then the Lake District is really no, not for you. It really isn't. And if you don't like not lakes, don't go to a place that's called the Lake <laughs> District. Right. But let's talk to Gerard, who's in crew, who wants to talk about foxes. Hello, Gerard. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Andre. But the world's gone mad, hasn't it? <laughs> it really has. What have you got for us on the fox front? Well, look, we keep chickens. Right. And we just ensure that they're secure, simple as that. And we get foxes visit us. And as soon as you open the door or show your face at the window, they're off. Right. My natural instinct is not to grab a baseball bat. And well, of course not. One. Now, well, I know this guy said it was trapped, but, I mean, I know my natural instinct would be to try and help the fox, not yes. to kill it. That, but then again, that might sum up the character of the man we're talking about. Well, quite. I mean, what, do you have do you have a kimono uh, by any chance, Gerard? Because he was dressed in, in a kimono while he was doing it. Uh, I'm up north, Mike. I don't know what a kimono is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, here's an interesting you know, one, right? A friend of mine keeps I, chickens, I right? Wear my wife's underwear, but I mean, I'm not. Yeah. Sure what a There's no need is. to admit to that on national radio. <laughs> um, my, uh, I have a friend who has chickens, and she lives just outside of Tunbridge Wells in Kent. She, one of her chickens, was killed by a mink. 
right? Because apparently in that part of the world, there are loads of wild mink who were set free by, guess what? Animal rights activists many, many years ago. And these are some of the most dangerous and horrible creatures in the entire uh, hemisphere. We have them up here in this area as well. But look, as you say, you, you won't get uh, Julian Moore on onto your programme because he's a character. He's a, he's a coward. Yeah, he won't come on here. No, he's already he blocked me on Twitter. He's not, there's no well, chance he's coming on here. No, he, look, he's the sort of person who hides behind his legalese and he's only walking into your room if he actually had a baseball bat in his hand and I still wouldn't fancy his chances. I wouldn't fancy his chances either. I'd take <laughs> no. it off him. <laughs> put it somewhere where he hadn't been for a while. But that's another story, Sharon. Thanks very much indeed. Let's talk to Craig, uh, who's in Oxford. Hello, Craig. Morning, Mike. How are we? Very well indeed. What can I do for you? Yeah, well, I had a run-in with the chickens a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, a fox in our chicken coop a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Um, we don't keep a lot. We only have about, well, we had nine. Um, and uh, a fox got in about five in the morning into our coop. Okay. Uh, two weeks back. Killed three of the chickens. Um, two were dead. One was sort of wounded. It's kind of ripped open a bit. Hey. Um, and sort of five in the morning, we've gone out into the garden armed with a, a six iron and a carving knife, trying to chase, you know, get this fox that's in the coop. It's just killed half of our... And how did he get in? Because don't you have covering over the top as well? We, we did, yeah. But unfortunately, during a, a recent storm, a bit of the roof had cracked. Oh, right. And um, it got in through this crack in the roof. Very um, cunning. Yes, uh, rather, rather than digging under. So anyway, it scared it scared off, and obviously being awake then and quite sort of alert, I've got, I've got a, a rifle with a bit of a night vision set up. A on rifle? Sort of waited. <laughs> well, you know, not Rambo you're talking about here, is it? No, no, not Vladimir. Not Vladimir the sniper. No. no. The small small calibre with a bit of a night vision thing on it. It, it came back to try and collect his spoils, and... Right. Um, I, you know, I got a bit of retribution for the chickens. You shot it. Well, that's the nature of the beast. Well, it's the nature of the beast in the, in the country, you know. Yeah, but you're it's, in the country. I mean, this guy's in Southwark, right? He's in the. He's in South London. Any, any. Let me say that any creatures that invade my house now, admittedly, that's mainly spiders. Yeah. I administer the death penalty. Do you? They, they, it's it, bad it, luck to kill spiders. You is know? that right? Yeah, you shouldn't kill spiders. <laughs> Very bad luck. Also, they keep the flies away. Well, I must admit, I, I, I had a problem with a couple of moths and then right. I decided to not kill any spiders anymore. Right. So now that it's no longer a capital offence okay. to be a spider in my house. So, Craig, do you have a, a licence for your gun, then? No, no, it's only a, it's, it's a, a, a two two air rifle, which is more than enough over the distance to take, take care of a fox. Really? OK, so it's an yeah. air rifle with a night vision sight. Yes. I wouldn't put it anywhere near the Royals when they come up there because you might find yourself getting taken out by the protection squad. No. <laughs> it's, it's very it's very common in the country. And as I say, it's outside the M25. I mean, I'm guessing this MP was going after an urban fox that was in his bins. Yeah, no, no, he has chickens. And I think he's... I mean, he doesn't like people to tell where he lives, even though he's already written pieces about where he lives. But I believe he's in Southwark, which is a, a um, not not dis not too distant from our office here at London Bridge. It's a it's a it, you know it's a local council which runs from sort of more or less Canary Wharf over to Waterloo that sort of way. Yeah, it's a it is a conundrum because as, as much as you know, if a fox is in my coop, that's it. It's you know it's it's days are done for. Um, I'm not a massive fan of of you know fox hunting. I don't agree with that. As a, it's a glorified sport. It's not a control method. Yeah. It's a, a bit of fun for the rich. No, listen, so your story, Craig, your story is entirely within the realms of what I would call normalcy. 
you know. However, if you'd said to me that you'd trapped the fox in a net of some kind and then while it was in that net, you'd gone inside the house to find a baseball bat, brought it out and then beat it to a pulp, I would say you were slightly deranged. Well, normal's probably the nicest thing I've been called lately. Well, there you are. You see, this is the nicest radio station you've ever listened to, Craig. Thanks very much indeed. It is extraordinary, isn't it, uh, Andre uh, Walker is here with us, that uh, that this Fox story has elicited such a lot of different kind of, um, I suppose, passions, because there are some people who think foxes are a pest. I see at least seven or eight foxes a week in London. I see one in my garden in Sussex, which is so beautiful, you wouldn't want to kill it. It's, yep. you know, fiery red colour, big bushy tail. The ones you see in London look like sort of slightly larger than rats. Well, but but um, this Jolyon, what what is his name? Jolyon Morm. Jolyon Morm. Well, the thing is, he's the leader of the Nutters. Yes, he right. Is. And so, consequently, people like me who instinctively would say, "Well, look, you've got to pest, con- you've got to do pest control. Yeah. If a fox attacks your chicken coop, then you have every right to kill it." Yeah. Um, people like that. He's already annoyed us ages ago. Mm. All he's got left is the woke PC lefty yes. brigade, and they all love foxes. But the therefore, thing he's is, managed to get everyone. He's offside. managed to even really all the people that used to use he used to. Use to crowdfund his various laws, uh, lawsuits against the government and to try and stop Brexit. They've all deserted him now. Yeah, that's they've right. gone, we are horrified to see that that's you right. are such a bloodthirsty, but, ghastly individual. But there's a serious point here, isn't there? If if what you dine out on is who can be the most offended by something, then in the end you will offend your audience. Yes. Because, because fundamentally, these are people who set out to be upset and offended by something. Like the guy you were talking about earlier. You know, he won't get on a bus in case it squashes yeah. an insect. Right. I mean, it's utterly ludicrous. It is. But if you are going to dine out on people like that if you're going to empower people like that then um, then that gives you problems but but of course there's a serious side to this he is a man who has used his education and probably not inconsiderable intellect to give a voice to these absolute lunatics yeah. and it's done significant harm to this country it has so, so i'm glad he's upset one of the things i did say to james max when i uh, had a little handover with him this morning is one of the things that i enjoyed about my uh, week away and my christmas was that not one person uh, that i encountered talked about brexit not one no. person now talks about it because it's done. The yes. game is over. Uh, we're leaving on January the 31st. Um, what we do know is that there will not be a shortage of food. There will not be a shortage of yeah. medicine. Uh, there will not be a shortage of foxes uh, or indeed baseball bats. But, but it, remi- it reminds me very much of when the, the the Leave polled ahead in Scotland for the Scottish referendum. It was the day when the Remain voters, whatever whatever they called themselves, were talking about how Scotland would pay extra for aftershave and perfume. Yeah. And the Scots bluntly were just offended Right. by this ridiculous old nonsense. Similarly, telling English... Well, do you remember the guy that came on my show a couple of weeks before Christmas and said there was going to be a shortage of pigs in blankets? And I went, no, there isn't. Oh, and, of ridiculous. course, there wasn't a shortage of pigs in blankets. Ridiculous. I was part, when I was a student, I was part of a day when a group of us, for a laugh, and this went across the whole country, we decided that on one day we were going to panic buy carrots. Right. Just a bit of a student laugh. Uh-huh. And you know what? We managed to buy something like 14% more carrots than are normally sold in the UK. And you know what? The, the supermarkets just had it. They knew right. what was going on, when it was going on, and they just put extra carrots on the shelf. It did not dent them in any way. Now, normally you would have said, and, and I would have said, if 14% of British produce was stopped at the port of Dover, yeah. then we'd have problems. But, of course, what people forget is, was it last year, 30 days the port of Dover was blocked yeah. because of disputes amongst the French? Well, it's like all these people that said, oh, the M20, there's going to be lorries piled up on it all summer. I'm like, yeah. well, that's what it's like anyway. Yeah, it's already right. like that. That's now, right. how about this? Before I ask you, I'm going to give you a second to think about this. I'm going to ask you for your top moment of 2019. But Graham from Bushy, first of all, says this. Have Andrew, Andre Walker and Jamie Eastman in the same room at the same time 
time as they both sound the same. Well, I normally, Jamie East is not going to like that. I normally get uh, Justin Morehouse, you know Potter's oh, yes. Tiger yeah, yeah. from Phoenix Nights. <laughs> and who's the other one? Chris Moyles. Oh, yes. I get, I get loads of those, unfortunately. Okay. Now, tell us about your top moment of 2019, because you must have had one. Um, well, I, oh, God, I don't want to be overly political, but the, the top moment it has got be. to it's be... It's all right. It's got to be the stunning election result of Boris Johnson. Yeah. And if people are going to accuse me of being biased, let me tell you, if I was to have a second result, it would be Theresa, Theresa the appeaser goes. Because yeah. this wasn't about Labour versus Conservative. Mm. This is about Brexit versus Remain or democracy about against anti-democracy. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.